If you can find your way, we're going to turn now to hear God speak to us uh, from Romans chapter 3. If you're new to our church, you're visiting, we have been uh, Sunday by Sunday working our way through this letter. It's not a particularly long letter. It's a, it's a long letter in uh, Bible standards. It's 16 chapters. And so we're at chapter 3, verse 9. And I'll read it to verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. One way to read the Bible is to see that it's a collection of stories, of little stories. I want to make the argument, and not just me, but most Bible scholars, that the Bible tells a single story. Some have called it a a meta-narrative or an overarching story by which all the other stories, the hundreds of them, find their meaning and purpose and place. And that this single story that the Bible tells is about what is wrong with the world, particularly what is wrong with the human race. This single story tells us about what God has done to put it right again. And this story talks about what it will be like then, when everything is made new. And so when you think of the Bible in that kind of a context, what Paul does here in chapter 3 is offer us an analysis of what went wrong with the human race. Very few people today argue that there's something wrong with the world. But there is lots of debate about what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with human beings. The Apostle Paul answers that question, what is wrong, in verse 9 when he says, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged, here it is, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul is taking a concept, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but here the, the, the totality of what he's saying is that all of mankind, and thereby the world in which we live, are under sin. Now what does that mean? we'll have to go a little deeper to understand what Paul means by all or under sin. But I know this, if we can get our minds around what Paul means by all under sin, 
then we are going to see the world differently. That if we can get our mind deep enough into the the condition of humanity, then we will see ourselves different and we will see the world differently. The outline of Paul's thinking about sin can be thought in these three big hooks, these big ideas. One is the universality of sin. The second is the trajectory of sin. And then the third, the cure for sin. So how... How spread, how pervasive is sin? Where does it take? Where is it going? And then last, is there any hope for escaping? The universality of sin, Paul is first point about sin is that it is universal, that it is comprehensive, that it leaves no exceptions. Everyone, whether you're religious or not, whether you go to church or you don't, whether you're in a mosque or you're at a temple, everyone is under sin is his point. This seems to be an odd thing to say. I would expect Paul to say first that all are sinners. That is, we all do sin. Behaviorally speaking, we all do something that marks us out. The other thing I would have expected him to say here is that we are all sinners. That is our identity. It's who we are. Not only what we do, but who we are. And he doesn't do either of those things. Instead, he says that all of humanity, this is our condition, are under sin. That is, we're under its dominion, under its power. And Paul's favorite way to describe that in the book of Romans is to call it, we're slaves to sin. Remember Paul's argument in chapter 1, and we, we should never move very far from it because all of Romans is answering this argument. His argument is that the entire human race has distorted God's original design for humanity. That is, human beings have rejected what we were designed to be and to do. And because we've rejected the design, we also end up Uh, rejecting the designer. You see, Paul's argument, his indictment is the way that I phrased it a couple of weeks ago, that he levels against humanity is that everyone, doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, doesn't matter whether you you worship uh, uh, Buddha or you worship Allah or you worship uh, 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 the Jewish God, that every human being on the face of the planet who has ever lived since Genesis 3 have have abandoned the design by which God created us to live. And by doing that, we reject the designer himself. And Paul's evidence is this list that he has in chapter 1, verse 24 through 31 of evils that humans do. That is, Paul says, you want proof that we've rejected the designer and that we have broken the design? Look at how we live. Look at what we're doing to each other. Look at our world, how broken it has become. And Paul's point here in chapter 3 is to drive it to verse verse 19 where he says, the whole world is held accountable to God because of it. The whole world is being held accountable. That word accountable means liable. 
Every human being, humanity in totality, is being held liable for distorting God's original design for mankind and for rejecting the designer. And that's got two implications. The first implication is this, to the universality of sin. People who are living a good life are no better than people who are living a bad life. People who are living good are no better than people who are not. At least spiritually speaking, they are in the very same place before God. Only Christians believe this. There's not another religion, there's not another philosophy, there's not another worldview that says whether I live a good life or I live a bad life, before God, I'm held accountable. I'm liable for breaking the design and rejecting the designer. We're the only ones, Bible-believing Christians are the only ones who believe this, that we need the gospel because before God, we are all guilty, whether we're heroes or killers, whether we're moral people or adulterers. Everyone is equally guilty before God. The gospel, this is the second implication, is not only that we're all guilty, but the gospel rehumanizes what has been dehumanized about humanity. Because the gospel obliterates those things that we use to define us and separate us. Instead of looking at a, at, at a homosexual couple and, and instead of saying, but by the grace of God, there go I, instead we say, I'm just the same. The difference between us isn't our morality, but God's work in us, his grace. And before you start ascending the text, Paul does see differences. He sees, God sees and Paul sees and Christians see differences. We're not blind. The consequences of certain evils are greater than the consequences of others. If you are involved in genocide, it is worse than, than cheating on your taxes because of the consequences that it can have. But having said that, but what really matters, what really counts before God is that you and I are in the same place. And that's the universality of sin. Paul is making the argument here that the dominion of sin respects no person, whether you're religious or not. And so he turns from that and he begins to talk about where does it take us? Where does the universality of sin go? The Bible says that evil is relational before it becomes behavioral. You see it here. Listen to verses 11 and 12 again. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Did you hear the verbs? No one seeks. All have turned. Those are directional verbs. You're moving in a direction when you're doing these things. Paul is saying the trajectory, where sin takes us, where evil goes, 
is away from God. It doesn't matter how small or how big the consequences of your sin. Each sin in the heart takes you further and further from God. They are ways to run in order to get out from under his gaze because we know we have done wrong and that he is our judge. Because he designed us, he has the right to tell us how we are to be designed. There are two ways to run away from God. We talked about that a little bit last week, so I'm not going to go deeply, but to summarize them this way. One way to run from God is to be a law unto yourself. And we are most familiar with that person who comes in and says, God must want me to be happy. And therefore, even though this is wrong in the eyes of the church and maybe in the eyes of the scriptures, but because he wants me happy, I'm going to do this. We tend to know this person well. The other person who's also running obeys the law in order to be blessed by God. Both are ways to seek a place, a a way to replace God. But with whom? Both with yourself. That's why Paul says no one seeks God. Seeking things from God is not the same thing as seeking God. This doesn't mean no one does anything good. I don't know how many people wonder the question, is Paul making the argument that no one can do good other than Christians? No, he's not making that argument. He's making this argument, that underneath every behavior is a motive. And therefore, we have to ask the question, why I am doing what I am doing? Even why I'm doing good. Why do I run from God? Who, why don't I seek him? Why am I distorting God's original design for me? It is because I enjoy away from him more than enjoy being with him. I can't trust him to tell me how to live because the way he may want me to live may not be enjoyable. You see, that's the trajectory of sin. It is always away from God. God has not moved. In fact, theologically, we we say that God is immutable. He's unchangeable. He's unmovable. And if God's not the one moving, yet we experience a distance, the answer to the question is who's moved is us. And so Paul gives us two, two pieces of medicine. So let me ask it this way and then come with these two pieces of medicine. And the first is when God looks at Annapolis, when God looks at our city, what do you think he sees? When God looks out over the masses of Anne Arundel County, what do you think he thinks and feels about our city? I think if you want a little glimpse, you can see it as Paul's description in verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asp, that is snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When I, when I read that, I think of the 1970s movie, The Night of the Living Dead. That is that when God looks at our city, when he looks at the spiritual condition of the people who live in our city and in our community, he says, dead people walking. Kind of like when Jesus looks over Jerusalem in Matthew, he says that he weeps over the city because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. When you see our city, do you see a city in need? Or something that you can use. Something that gives you the resources to get whatever is next. From God's perspective, he sees dead people. A great deal of discouragement and unhappiness. A brokenness. People who were designed to be one thing are living another way. And therefore rejecting him as the designer. In one way, it's a a lot like a spiritual leprosy. Graham Gucci, who's in our church years ago, was on the board of the International Society for Leprosy. Because you don't see it so much anymore, particularly in the United States, we've kind of lost contact or touch with what leprosy is. And physical leprosy, your parts don't fall off of you. Literally, you're so desensitized, your nerves have been so deadened that you end up touching things that you should not touch because you don't know that it hurts because you can't feel it anymore. And so the the reason people have missing arms and fingers and toes is because they did something that normally, because it's hot, we wouldn't do. They can't feel the heat. And so... Physical leprosy is to be desensitized to reality. It's to be physically okay on the inside, but on the outside, everything is coming off. And so when God sees our city, he sees a spiritual leprosy, a kind of desensitized to their designer that has tremendous consequences in society. And Paul says, well, now let me give you these two pieces of cure. The first one is found in verse 19. Now we know that what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Paul is saying, stop the excusing, stop mitigating, stop coming up with reasons not to offer any more excuses to, to use Paul's vernacular. We are to just shut up. This doesn't mean you're to beat yourself up for your sins. That's still not shutting up. Paul's asking us to repent, to look at the motives of our hearts and to stop and to receive. You ever, you ever notice that it's, it's incredibly difficult to receive a gift while your hands are still f- filled? 
coming to God with all of your good deeds and all of your things that you're commending yourself to the Lord fills your hands up so you cannot receive the gift he wants to give you, which is salvation. And so Paul's first piece of advice is empty your hands. Stop your excuses and receive by faith. I told you, I quoted last week from John Gershner. He goes on in the same article and he says this, because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold him back because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God, but the sinner's good works. Let that sink in. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. And then here's, here's the challenge. But most people don't have it because their hands are filled with their good deeds. They have looked at the good things I have done. The gospel calls us to shut up and to receive. All you need is nothing. The problem is most don't have it. The second piece of medicine, and it goes with the whole idea of stand still, stop moving, is fear the Lord. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid of God. The context of fearing God means awe and wonder to look at who God is and what God has done and respond to him in worship. That's how the Psalms work. If you read a Psalm, often it, it talks about the greatness of God, either in who he is or what he has accomplished for us. And then a filled verse after verse of response of worship. Because God is saying to fear me is to love me with all of your heart and all of your soul, and all of your strength, and all of your mind. Well, where do we get that? We get that because we, we first not look at our love for him, but his love for us. Because he first loved us, Paul writes, no one seeks after God. If we're seeking, it is because he pursued us first. He found us, he sought us, and brought us in. The cure is God seeking and finding you even while you were still running. When I first became a Christian, I did not know there was a book of Hosea. And it wasn't until I was in seminary and took an Old Testament class on the minor prophets that I read Hosea for the first time. So I'm about near 30. And and I can remember, this is an unbelievable story. I didn't even know it was here. It, for those of you who don't know this story, let me just briefly give you the story, because I think the story is so important to this text. Hosea is a preacher. He's a young guy. He's, he's been ministering in the city for a while, and, and God comes to him. He's, he's a single guy, and he says, I've got a bride for you. Man, can you imagine Hosea's heart? Man, God is my matchmaker. Instead of paying somebody and, and instead of wooing somebody, God is offering somebody. I can't wait to introduce her to all the ladies of the church. They are going to be so impressed with God's pick for me. 
And God says, well, I'll tell you who I've got for you. Her name is Gomer. And immediately, Hosea's heart sinks. Because if he's the preacher in town, he knows who Gomer is, the town prostitute. He can't imagine what it will be like to introduce Gomer to the church lady. It's not going to go well. She's going to be ostracized. Nobody's going to invite her to Bible study. Nobody's going to get her to come to the Christmas dinner because she's the town prostitute, no matter that she's the wife of the preacher. And it's not long before her heart begins to want what she once had in her life. All the men. In fact, Hosea never says that the three children are his. And so the first child comes along and they name the child, you're not my people. And the next one, I don't love you. Can you imagine you're, you're, you're in the hospital, you, you couldn't wait, and, and the child comes and you look at the child and you say, you're not mine. I don't love you. Scattered. Those are the names of the kids. But then it's not long before that's not even enough. So she wants to leave the house and she goes after one of her, her, her former uh, Johns, uh, chases after him for a while. And then when he's had enough, she goes on to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to eventually he sells her into the marketplace because she's of no value, even as a prostitute. So here's Hosea, who's been raising these three kids who are probably not his own kids in the church and all the disgrace and all the whispering, all the uh, terrible looks. And he's thinking, well, maybe eventually everybody's going to forget. I'm going to get past all this and nobody's going to hold this against me anymore. And God comes to him and says, Hosea, I got another thing for you to do. I want you to go into the town square where, you, where Hosea is being sold and I want you to buy her. And I want you to take her down and not make her your slave. I want you to buy her so she can be your wife again. Whoa! I can't can't fathom this idea that this woman who left me, you want me to go pursue? And that's when God lays this unbelievable chapter 3 picture. Hosea, Gomer is you. Gomer are all my people. They've all been unfaithful. They've all been going after their own lovers. And I've had to pursue them. I've had to buy them back. I've had to take my righteousness and clothe their nakedness and bring them home, embarrassed to the cosmos, but not to me. And that's why I'm asking you to do that. Why is this story so amazing? I get this, I get these cards and now it's text. Every time I talk about Hosea and Gomer, are you asking, I've got a difficult marriage, my husband or my wife, they've had an affair. Should I stay with them? Are you saying that because God asked Hosea, I must? No, you're missing the point. We are not Hosea. We are Gomer. Every last one of us are Gomer. The minute we take the place of Hosea, we've created a superiority and an inferiority, which is where Paul began. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one has done good. Not even one. 
No, he's, his point isn't go and, re, and remarry the one who has left you. That's not his point. His point is that's what I have done as God, as the bridegroom for you. My, my son, Mike, has a, has a pool in his backyard. And, and, and they, they have these steps, and then they have a shallow end, and they have a deep end. And when the girls first started getting in the water, they, they hung on the steps because they knew if, if things really went bad, they could just stand up. And for a, for a lot of us, that is our understanding of the love of God for us. It's right there at the steps. It's not very deep. It's not very challenging. It's not very awe-inspiring. It's right there. But eventually God reveals a little bit more about his love to us and we're willing to go into the shallow end where it could be a little more dangerous. The water could get into our nose. We could go under. For those of you who've been in the church a long time, You've been waiting in the deep end, the deep end of God's love. And and you worship so profoundly because of what God has revealed to you about himself and how much he has loved you like Hosea and Gomer. I just want you to know the deep end of the pool is not the end of the pool. It's far more like an infinity pool than it is like Mike's pool. The affinity pool comes up to the ocean and it looks like it goes right into the ocean. That is the how deep and wide and the length and the height of God's love for us. We'll see that in chapter eight. I mean, chapter 11. This is not the end. We're gonna go deep. That's the purpose of church. That's the purpose of worship for us to come in here and hear how deep and wide and profound God's love is for us. And we respond in worship and we go deeper into the water. But eventually when Christ comes back, he's going to break that wall between the infinity pool and the ocean. And we're going to swim in the bottomless pool of the ocean of God's love. That's where we're going. If, if you think this is the end of it all, you've missed where we're going. And so we get a taste now. And for some, you feel just comfortable sitting on the steps. And for others, you're into the shallow end. But if things get really bad, you can just stand up. Others of you, you, you are way further than I am. You're way more comfortable in the deep end. But all of us, are still in the pool. God's coming back to get rid of the pool to welcome us into the ocean. Thanks be to God. And Paul wants us to understand that that's the response that we're supposed to have. That changes everything about the direction, the trajectory, and rehumanizes the dehumanized human being who has broken the design and rejected the designer. And Paul's going to spend the next eight chapters explaining that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the beauty of the gospel that even though for some of us, we cannot fathom the next step into the pool of your love to contemplate Hosea and Gomer's story is too rich, too deep, too scary. 
Help us to take another step in, to come further in and further up, and to long for the day where the edge of the pool will be gone and it will just melt into the ocean in which we are all bid to come. I pray, Heavenly Father, that that's the picture of the church of Jesus Christ. We started at the steps, we moved into the shallow end, we're in the deep end, but we can see the cracks in the wall that leads to the ocean. We long for our Savior to return and to make that true. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.